picking back up our study in the book of Daniel and specifically in the uh, latter portion of the book of Daniel, which is the portion that contains the, uh, Daniel's prophecies, uh, the prophecies that the Lord gave to Daniel. I told you last week that we have a, uh, subtitled this series through Daniel, um, uh, Kings and Kingdoms. The first six chapters of Daniel has everything to do with the history of the kings that were in power during the reign, uh, during the time that Israel was in captivity. And in the first six chapters of Daniel, we are, we are shown the sovereign providential power of God um, as he uh, oversees the, the affairs of his children in the midst of a pagan nation and uh, a pagan world, really. And that's encouragement for us because we are not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven. We're not living home right now. We're headed home right now. And I'm thankful that God's looking out for us down here as we live for him. And that, that God preserves those that are his. And I'm thankful for that truth there. Uh, the last six chapters of Daniel have to do all with the kingdoms. I said the series is called Kings and Kingdoms. And uh, chapters 7 through 12 have all to, all to do with the kingdoms of this world. And we're going to be marching through these chapters and uncovering significant truth um, of uh, prophecy that God has revealed to us to help us understand God's plan for this world. And uh, God does have a sovereign plan. Sometimes it seems like things are falling out of place, but with God, they're fall, always falling into place. And uh, he knows what he's doing. And he can even take the evil of this world and work it out for our good and for his glory, and he will do just that. Um, and so that's one of the things we'll be assured of as we study the, the rest of the book of Daniel together. And so today I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a brief survey of Daniel's prophecy, and then we're going to focus in on what is really the centerpiece of all the prophecy of Scripture. And I'll clarify that, clarify that for, you, uh, for you in just a moment. But let me give you a summary. We're going to walk right through, and I'm not going to read anything yet. I just want you to listen because I'm going to teach you for a little bit today. Um, I'm going to talk to you about Daniel's chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. What's happening in the latter portion of Daniel? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, God begins by giving Daniel a vision of four beasts. And by the way, these visions that God gives to Daniel, they don't happen sequentially. There are year gap, years and years of gaps in between all of these prophetic visions that God gives to Daniel, and they really happen throughout his life. But the first vision he was given um, personally was a vision of four beasts, and that's the vision of Daniel chapter 7. If you read it, the prophecy is actually very akin to dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had about the great image. Remember that great image that had a head of gold and, and uh, arms and chest of silver and then the, the, uh, the torso and, and, and the thighs of brass and the legs of iron and the feet part, part of iron and part of clay? Um, again, there was, there was really four primary sections there on that great image, and there are four beasts that appear on the scene in Daniel's dream in Daniel chapter number 7. And this was a prophetic vision about the rise and fall of world powers to come. Um, and the end of that prophecy indicates that there will be one great world leader that rises onto the scene um, and ultimately will rule the world for a short time until the Lord Jesus, or the Messiah, God Almighty comes and overthrows him. Um, and so it's a, it's a really, uh, it shows the, the timetable of what's going to happen to this world. That's Daniel chapter 7. 
Then we move on to Daniel chapter 8. And in Daniel chapter 8, God gives a vision of the vision of the ram and the goat. Very interesting, interesting vision. The ram and the goat. And this is a prophetic vision about the coming world events surrounding what I would call the prototype of the Antichrist. And that is uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And we're going to be studying uh, some of that history as we get into Daniel chapter 8. Um, but uh, all those events that happened, and they actually did happen in history. These are past now for us. They were future for Daniel. They were, uh, they were all representative of what is ultimately going to happen in a much greater scale with the Antichrist. That's Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 9, God gives Daniel the vision of the 70 weeks. Perhaps you've heard of Daniel's 70 weeks before. This is perhaps the most critical of all the visions that God gave to Daniel. And I say that because this one vision is the key that unlocks the door to understanding all Bible prophecy. If you, if you misunderstand what is indicated by what the Bible teaches us in Daniel chapter 9, you entrap yourself in a world of eschatology that is the study of Bible prophecy that has to become allegorical and has to become uh, filled with what I would call lots of speculation. And so it's a very incredibly important prophecy. And Daniel chapter 9 gives the prophetic table, timetable, for the rest of human history. Literally, in this chapter, which we'll look more into in just a moment, God gives us every, God just outlines everything that's going to happen, happen to the end of, end of the age until, until this world's done and gone with and time is no more. It's a fantastic chapter, incredible chapter. Then we move on to Daniel chapter 10 and 11, which kind of flow together in their thoughts um, and in the, in the account that is given there. Daniel 10, 11, and 12 all really flow together. But Daniel 10 and 11 consist of a prophetic forecast for how the Antichrist is going to rise to power through the annals of time. Then we get to the final chapter, Daniel chapter 12. And in Daniel, Daniel uh, uh, chapter 12, it gives the final prophetic verdict with a solemn promise that these things will, are sealed. In other words, they're signed, sealed, and delivered. And these things will come to pass. And so either you're going to get on board with what God says is coming, or if you don't get on board, when, when the final judgment is given, those some will rise to everlasting life, Daniel 12, 12, 3 says, and some will, last, will rise to shame and everlasting corruption, destruction. Choice. God says this is happening, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. So you get on board or you don't get on board, that's your choice. Um, but, but God told Daniel, seal the prophecy. Not time for it to happen yet, but it's going to happen. And so that's, that's the summary of what we're going to be studying in the book of Daniel. And some of you say, okay, good job. Let's, let's stop there. Let's move on to something else. You finished it. Uh, no, we're going to take our time, and there's a whole lot more that's in there than uh, the summary I just gave. But one significant event lies at the center of all that God has planned, the prophetic sphere. And that is found in Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 26. Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 26. And here's what the Bible says. After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not himself. Would you read that first phrase out loud with me together? After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the central focus 
of all of Scripture. Here we're reminded even as a prophecy is given about a Messiah, Daniel doesn't even know who it is. Daniel doesn't even know what this Messiah is going to do. God gives Daniel this prophecy to write in the account of what's going to happen to the Messiah years and years and years before the Messiah ever even comes. It's always in God's mind. Cross, the breaking point of history, center point of history. Life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus is a central focus of all time and human history. Book of Revelation, you can write this down if you want. Chapter 19 and verse number 10, the Bible tells us to worship God because the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy is the record of Jesus Christ. That's what the spirit of prophecy is. And so much, uh, so much, so many people get entrapped in prophecy and lose focus on the fact that really all the truth of prophecy should either be pointing us to Christ, because there's many prophecies in the Old Testament that point us to the coming Christ. The prophecies of today should point us back to Christ and what he's accomplished and forward to Christ because he's coming again. It's all about Jesus. And it's all about the good news of what Jesus has come to accomplish for us. All of God's plans for this world are built on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says that Jesus is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Before God ever even created this world, he already had in mind the fact that Jesus would come and be crucified for our sins. From the beginning, from before the beginning of time, God knew that this was his plan all along for man. This divine plan, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, was kept as a mystery throughout the years before Christ. After Jesus came, this was a mystery that was made known to the world. Um, and a verse of scripture here that tells us about this, Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. You can turn there if you like. You're quick. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. The Bible says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, there's the word, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets. In other words, when Jesus came, he took the scriptures of the prophets where this truth was concealed and made them known. In Luke chapter, Luke chapter 24, Jesus is walking down the road to Emmaus with some of his disciples and they're trying to figure out, this isn't what we thought the Bible says was going to happen to the Messiah. The Bible says that Jesus began with Moses and related to them all the things in the Old Testament scriptures concerning himself. I love that. Mystery before Christ came, but after he came, this mystery was made known. And now we live on the other side of the cross and we have the blessed privilege of having both Old and New Testament to be able to benefit from and learn from and see a, 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 more, a fuller picture Although we don't even have the full picture yet, we have prophetic revelations about the future, but things about it that we won't comprehend or understand until it happens. But we are blessed to live on, on this side of the cross. And so this was the divine mystery, hidden from the world in centuries past, but now made known to us today. And the divine mystery can be summed up in that simple phrase in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, where the Bible says that the Messiah shall be cut we gather around this table tonight, the reasons we're here to remember the Messiah was cut off for us. We're going to take time to do that tonight. 
as we study this prophecy of Scripture. Why did he have to be cut off? Why is his being crucified, the centerpiece, all human history, all prophecy of Scripture? Why should it be important to us still today? I want us to consider as we study these truths. Let's pray together and ask for God to continue to speak to our hearts. Father, we come before you. We thank you, God, for this chance to get into your word. Lord, there is wonderfully rich truth that you have packed for us into this passage of Scripture. I pray that I would just step aside, Lord, and that you would take over and speak to our hearts. And I pray that you will open up our understanding to the Scriptures and give us not only a willing mind to listen, a willing heart to respond to the preaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are three significant truths surrounding the Messiah being cut off that I want us to note together here tonight. Number one, plan of God. I'm going to note down the plan of God. Daniel, as we study the book of Daniel, we'll see this more. He had, in the beginning of chapter 9, been studying the book of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah, of all things. He relates that in studying the book of Jeremiah, he had come to understand how God had revealed to the prophet Jeremiah that there were going to be 70 years of judgment upon the people of Israel from the moment that the Babylonians had conquered them until they were allowed to return to their land. And the 70 years were determined, and as Daniel had been studying Jeremiah's prophecy, he came to understand this, and after he came to understand, 70 years had been determined on Israel for judgment because of their sin. It led him into one of the most incredible seasons of prayer and repentance recorded in the Scriptures. The point of the sermon tonight is not to cover that portion of Scripture, but you read Daniel. After all we know about Daniel, to see the humility of Daniel, Daniel getting on his face before God, a man who literally went into lion's dens, held his resolve in God, falling on his face before a holy God and saying, God, I'm sinful, confessing his sin to God, broken, really embodying many of the truths we studied together this morning. Daniel, in this season of prayer, after it was done, they're in the midst of this season of prayer and brokenness before the Lord, the Bible indicates to us that while he was doing this, God sent an angelic messenger to Daniel to cause him to understand, yes, 70 years were determined to punish Israel, but there was more to the story. God, through that time of sincere prayer, revealed to Daniel a vision. And this was the first vision that God revealed to Daniel that is recorded for us in the Scripture. And I want us to read it starting in verse number 24. Verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9. Start in verse 23 for context. Beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee. Thou art greatly beloved. This is the messenger angel speaking to Daniel. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Here it is. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make a reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, or sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. God had told Daniel that 70 weeks were left 
on his timetable for the world. We look at that and say, well, been a whole lot more than 70 weeks that have gone by since God said that. There must be more to the story. The scriptures here, the, the idea communicated by 70 weeks is literally a set of 77s. The, the word uh, in the Hebrew for week is also translated in some places as seven. But it doesn't always have to mean week, but it was generally a set of seven. It was generally considered to be a set of seven days. But throughout Scripture, there are many instances of the, the, fra- the, word, the same Hebrew word translated week in English being used to speak of a set of seven years. Example, if you want to go there or you can write it down, Genesis chapter 29, verse number 28. Genesis chapter 29, what's happening is Jacob starts working for Laban because he loves Rachel, Laban's daughter. He works seven years, and they just seem to him as nothing, the Bible says. After seven years are over, he says, okay, give me my wife. I worked for her. It's my my chance to have her now. So they have a big wedding ceremony, and the classic Hebrew custom, um, the wife is veiled, and they go into the tent, um, in, in a dark tent, and they enjoy their wedding night together. And The Bible says when he woke up in the morning, it was her sister, Leah, Hummer, okay? And so then he comes back to Laban and says, you tricked me, you dirty dog. And Laban in Genesis 29 and verse 28 says, it's okay, um, I got a plan. Fulfill her week and you can have my other daughter. He literally uses the phrase fulfill or finish her week. He's talking about seven days or, or was he talking about seven years? Well, he's talking about seven years. Right? And so there is one instance, there's several instances I could give you, but for the sake of context, I want you to understand the authority of Scripture does teach that a week is often referred to as a set of seven years. And so when we read of Daniel's 70 weeks, understand the weeks were years. And the weeks represent, each week represents seven years, just like our week would represent seven days. Does that make sense to all of you? So this is, this is the 70 weeks. And so God was revealing that there would be 70 weeks of years. That is 77-year periods, or we could say 490 years, were going to transpire. In that time, he was going to complete his plan for the world. During that time period, the Bible tells us what was going to take place, more specifically in verse number 24. I'll not take time to read it again. But he goes down and gives a list of five things that he said were going to take place in that time period. 70, these 70 uh, weeks of years were required to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for the people. These are things that Christ did, by the way. Right? To seal up the vision and prophecy. In other words, to fulfill everything that God said was going to happen and to anoint the most holy. To, to anoint the Messiah as the king in the millennial age. All of these things have great prophetic significance. And God says, I've already determined 70 weeks. I'll finish my plan for the world. God clarified that these 77-year periods, these 70 weeks would be further divided. And in verse number 25, he talks about this. The first division that he mentions in verse 25 is that they were going to be first off out of that seven weeks the first division of that 70 weeks was going to be a set of seven weeks. Are you confused yet? Right. Well, look at verse 25 with me, okay? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks. 
There's the first division that's mentioned. And that first seven weeks, which is just a part of the full 70 weeks, okay, that first seven weeks is indicative of a period of about 49 years during which the Bible says the command was going to be given to rebuild Jerusalem and the streets and walls would be reconstructed. Will you study your history? That's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. Um, and in the time period that God foretold it was going to happen. The, the uh, decree went forth and Jerusalem was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt. Read the book of Nehemiah. Uh, the temple was rebuilt. Uh, read the book of Ezra. The city was rebuilt. Just as God said it was going to be. And so the first division of the 70 weeks was a period of seven weeks or 49 years. And then the second division, the end of verse 25, the Bible says that there will be these seven weeks. And then after that, there will be three score and two weeks. A period now of three score and two weeks or, or, six, uh, or six, uh, 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 62 weeks. Or if you consider it to be those weeks being years, it would literally be 434 years. In that time, God would bring out the summation of everything that he had planned for the Messiah to come and then to be cut off, crucified in this world. And that leaves then, you help me do the math, 7 plus 62, where are we at? 69 weeks. How many weeks did God say there was going to be until he was done with everything? But he's left. One week is described for us in verse number 27. Verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for what? There it is. One week. We often refer to this week, the tribulation. Seven-year period. God will finish his judgment upon this earth, establish at the end of it his millennial kingdom on this earth. But there's the 70th week of Daniel. We'll study that extensively as we study through the book of Daniel. But understand this. In between the 69th week, when the Messiah was cut off, and that last week, the 70th week, is a mystery is intertwined into the scripture that was kept hidden from people in the Old Testament time period. But we know what it is today. I alluded to it earlier. And that is the fact that Jesus Christ is going to usher in an age the time of the Gentiles is what the, uh, the, what the Old Testament calls it, in which all the world was going to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and come to faith in Jesus. That is the age we're living in today. This isn't part of this prophecy that God gave here, but one day God is going to rapture his church and he is going to revive his prophetic calendar for this world and there'll be a last and final seven-year period which God will complete everything that he has planned for this world. If we study this passage of scripture, it truly is incredible to consider God has everything planned out. In, down to minute details, and, and I, I don't have the time to get into it here tonight, but the accuracy of, these, of this scripture is just incredible. Um, for example, uh, we know it's established history that Artaxerxes gave the edict to rebuild Jerusalem in 445 B.C., if you, if you fast forward to the time that Jesus Christ came into this world, factoring in the fact that they didn't have year-long periods like we have today, in ancient times, their years were 360 days long. You have 300 years, your periods that are 365 days long, so that does change the numbers a little bit. Instead of it being uh, a, four, a full 400 and, uh, 483 years, um, if you make that differential in there, it's shaving five days off of, of every one of those years. Uh, it actually adds up to be about 476 of our modern years. 
you add up all those 69 weeks, so those 476 years that God said from the time that he gave the prophecy to Daniel to the time that Jesus came, every single, every single date lines up. Time the edict, from the time the edict came forth for the, for, for the Jerusalem to be rebuilt to the time the Messiah came, if you do the math, it goes from 445 B.C. when that edict was given to 32 A.D., A.D. 32, here Jesus Christ was crucified. It's just incredible, the fulfillment of prophecy here. The fact that, that the first part of this prophecy was fulfilled is this assurance that the final part of this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled. So we see that this was all a part of the divine plan of God from before the world began. And it just turns my heart to Romans chapter 11 and verse number 33 where the Bible says, Oh, the depth, the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways are past finding out. It's incredible to me how God orchestrated all of these details. And that leads me to the second truth that I think we need to understand about the Messiah being cut off. First, we see it was according to the plan of God. Number two, I want you to see that it is part of the provision of God. Part of the provision of God. Look at verse 26 with me again. The Bible says in verse 26, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. The Messiah being cut off was the divine provision of God for you and for me. This is what I'm going to labor to help us understand here this evening. First off, I want you to see that it was a sovereign provision that God gave us here. A sovereign provision. From the very beginning, God had provided a way for mankind to be saved. And the picture of this is illustrated in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham is walking up Mount Moriah. Which, by the way, was the exact same mount that Jesus one day would walk up to be crucified on. Abraham is walking up with his son Isaac up Mount Moriah. They're going up because God's told them to offer a sacrifice on the top of the mount. And as they're walking up the mount, his little son asks Abraham, Dad, I see all the stuff for the sacrifice. Where's the lamb? I have a lamb. Abraham looks at his son and he says, Son, God will provide himself a lamb. They walk up the mountain and they get up to the mountain they get up there, they lay out all the stuff for the, for the sacrifice, and then Abraham does what God told him to do. God told him to sacrifice his own son on that altar, and he puts his son on the altar, and he raises the knife to take his son's life, believing, I will say, that God was able to raise him from the dead. This is what God wanted him to do. God had promised to put, give him many nations through that son. He takes the knife up to take his son's life, and God stops him. He says, don't take your son's life. I know you truly believe in me. The Bible says that in that moment, Abraham looks over and he sees a ram caught in a thicket. He takes it and he, and, he, and he uses that ram as a sacrifice in place of his son. A substitutionary ram, a ram offered up as a sacrifice there. And from the beginning of time, mankind has had the cry of Isaac that has said, Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And on the day that Jesus Christ introduced himself to the world, John the Baptist openly declared, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ came as that Lamb, as that sacrifice. None, none, no other person in this world could have been that sacrifice, but God had foreordained before the very foundation of the world that Jesus Christ was going to be that sacrifice. He was a sovereign provision for us at God's appointed time, 
Jesus Christ stepped forward to reveal himself as that sacrifice for us. Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, so that we could receive the adoption of sons. Jesus was God's selection. Jesus was the only one who could be selected. He was the only one who was worthy to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. For the first time in the Old Testament, and the only time in the Old Testament, he's given a name in Daniel chapter 9. You know what it is? Messiah. You won't find it anywhere else in the Old Testament. Here, the Jews, and to us all, introduced to a name, and were introduced more importantly to a person, Messiah. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word. Uh, Masiach, that literally means the chosen one or the anointed one. It's important for us to understand that God chose Jesus to be the one to come and offer himself up as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, the Bible tells us. Do you understand this? Christ's sacrifice for you was not an afterthought. It was a forethought. Before he even made the world, he knew it was going to be necessary to come and die to redeem mankind. Write this down. 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 2 says that you and I are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, God chose you before you ever even came into this world. He chose you knowing that you are going to be a sinner and knowing that by choosing you, desiring you to come to faith in him, that what that meant was he was going to have to go to the cross to die for you, to pay for your sin so that you could have a relationship with him. He still wants you. He still made you. Knowing what, what, what was going to be necessary in order for you to become his. You're going to have to die on that cross. And so we see that this provision... Messiah being cut off, it was a sovereign provision. I want you to see also that it is a sacrificed, sacrificial provision. The Bible tells us in verse 26 that the Messiah will be cut off. I want you to just think about that phrase with me for a minute. Messiah cut off. The phrase is translated from the Hebrew karath. literally means to eliminate or to kill. Jesus was eliminated since. For our sins. What happened? Jesus, in the upper room, he administered the first Lord's Supper with his disciples. And he told his disciples that he was about to be taken, crucified. And they didn't want to believe it. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Look full well for just hours, the moment he's to be taken and crucified. He falls on his knees. He prays those great prayers. We hear him pray in the Garden of Gethsemane great prayers of grief because he knows what's coming. I don't believe for a second that Jesus was nervous about the physical suffering that he would endure on the cross, although it was tremendous. But there in the garden, he asked God to deliver him, if it was possible, having to be tainted with the sin of the world. Because he who had never sinned became sin for us. That's what he dreaded more than anything else. The Bible says he sweat great drops of blood from that garden. He knew what was coming. He pled with God as he awaited. The moments went by. Alone. It was him, his father. 
waiting for his time. This is the power, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He told the group of men who came to him to capture him and take him away. And the Pharisees had sent a group of individuals who captured him and carried him off to a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of that day and time. And they sat him down and for hours they questioned him. And for hours they tried to find a way, find a, an excuse to have him crucified. The witnesses' uh, accounts didn't even agree to the things they were trying to accuse Jesus about. And they spat him as they spat him in the face and they slept him in the face they blindfolded him and hit him with a reed and told him tell us who it was that tell us who it was that just hit you if you are who you say you are as he sat there eventually was falsely accused and dragged from that heretical council the roman government the pharisees gathered a crowd of people compelled them to urge the roman leaders to have jesus killed same crowd that had torn down palm branches on Palm Sunday and had said, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Seven days later, the compelling of the Pharisees were crying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate, like he had no choice, washed his hands in front of the crowd and he said, I find no fault in this man. Do what you want with him. And the Romans got him. He took him off the praetorium. Very wicked painful place stripped his clothes off of him strapped him up to a post most people believe the hands together suspended him in the air as he was suspended they took whips cat of nine tails whipped with several strands on it pieces of broken bone and glass and anything sharp that they could get intertwined into it as he was hung suspended in the air the romans took the whip and they slapped it on his back go down into his body and would rip the flesh off of him as they pulled it back out and then you would just do it time after time after time. Jews would only allow there to be 39 stripes. I'm not sure exactly what happened there. My memory doesn't serve me correctly. They whipped him, put his clothes, the clothes they'd taken off of him, they put on mock clothes on him, and they put a, a crown of thorns upon his head, two to three inches long um, is, is what I am told. I've never been to Israel to see him myself. Thorns that are there to that area where they were at, winded those thorns together, beat him down into his head, gave him a fake staff, a purple robe on him, and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! You think you're the King of the Jews? Look at you. Mocked him. The Bible says they led him down the streets of Jerusalem, the hill of Golgotha, mocking him, beating him, crowd taunting him, so weakened by that point that he could barely carry his cross. So compelled another man named Simon to bear it for him. Took him to Golgotha. They laid the wooden cross on the ground. Threw him down on it. They say it was a splintery old piece of wood. Took those long Roman nails. Imagine them going into his hands. Imagine them going into his feet. Put him right through the tendons and so it would be painful. Allow any weight to be suspended on it and would force the people who are on the cross be able or to, to, to have to force themselves to extend their body out just to get a breath. They hung him up on that cross. You imagine the cross coming up and falling into the ground. Jesus Christ hung. The breath he had to take, body suspended, he had to lift himself up just to get a breath. Three hours he hung on that cross. He hung that cross for three hours by his own choice because he still had some teaching to do. But forgive them for they know not what they do. To thy hand I commit my spirit. Hey, you'll be with me in paradise. Those are the things Jesus said from the cross. He had 
ministry happening even while he was actively dying for our sins. The most terrifying thing and the most horrendous thing that happened to Christ while he hung on that cross, that God the Father poured out his wrath, every wrong thing that you've ever done, Jesus, while he hung on that cross. The first time in history, God the Father, when Jesus took on our sins, turned his face from God the Son. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was truly alone. He did all of it. Your place, your sin. The Messiah being cut off. Mary's great significance for us cost him everything. That's what Jesus Christ did for you. That's why we remember Jesus did for us. The sovereign provision, the sacrificial provision. I also want you to see that it was a substitutionary provision. Look at one more phrase, and I'm just going to stop there for sake of time tonight. Look at verse 27. After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. The next four words say, not for himself, but not for himself. Jesus is a sinless son of God. Peter 2 verse 22 says, he knew no sin, neither was there any guile found in his mouth. Knew no sin, the Bible says. He was not a sinner. He did not deserve to be on that cross. Not deserve to die. He was the one human who has ever lived in this world who never would have had to die. You understand? He willingly offered up his life. All of us who were bound to an inescapable death. That's what Jesus did for us. He did it a substitution. I don't have time to go to these passages. I want you to write them down. Maybe you can look at them later. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. The Bible says, He who knew no sin came sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus took the rags of our wretchedness upon Himself and died in our place for our sin so that when we believe in Him as our Savior, we can be clothed with the robes of His righteousness. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus substituted Himself for us to be punished for our sin. And now He allows for us to be substituted in His place as a Son of God to be able to enjoy the joys of eternity Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing. Because of that, the Bible uses a very solemn biblical word. Pitiation. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, my little children, I write you these things that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a theological word that means satisfactory payment. Words, what the Bible is saying is Jesus is a satisfactory payment for your sins. And not for yours only, but for the sins of the whole world, the Bible says. Understand, he died for the sins of the whole world. He is able to save anyone who comes to God by him. Hebrews 7, 25 says, that's Jesus. And he asserted himself in that position. And he didn't just die uh, because uh, because of uh, his controversial teaching. In fact, he didn't die for that reason at all. He didn't die because anyone took his life from him. He makes it very clear, no man will take my life from me. I will lay it down of my own will, of my own volition. And Jesus went to that cross, and the reason he went to that cross was to die for your sin so that you could be saved. That is the privilege that is ours as the children of God, could not be saved. Jesus hadn't died on that cross. Could not be saved. Jesus hadn't died on that 
cross. And I'm thankful that from before God ever even had a thought of creating this world, that he had already had in mind he was going to be willing to die for every single one of us so that we could be saved. The song says he even grew the tree. He knew it would be used to make the old rugged cross. Made the sinners. Made it necessary to sacrifice himself on the old rugged cross. Better love. No man than this. And a man lay his life down for his friends. Even when we were enemies, Christ sacrificed himself that we could be reconciled to him. Greatest love is Christ's love for us. That's the love that we acknowledge here tonight. I find great comfort in the fact that Jesus' sacrifice for us is the centerpiece of all history. It's the centerpiece of all prophecy. To have everything else but to miss this most important truth, to render yourself to an eternity of destitution apart from God. Till you come to the cross, you can't understand anything else in the scriptures. Where it all began. Friend, that's where it all, for us as believers, where we all should live. The foot of the cross. The foot of the cross. The last thing I'll just mention, the performance of God. Last part of verse number 27. The Bible says, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. In other words, God still has more to the story. He says, I'll do it. All that's been determined will be poured out, right? Judgment's coming to those who don't know Christ. For those of us that do, eternal glory, blessing, hallelujah. Amen. Something we can look forward to. It's all only possible because of what Jesus has done for us. In summary, because of what Christ has done for us, the least you can do is live for him today. Looking unto Jesus, author and finisher of our faith, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now set down on the right hand of the throne of God. The Bible says, consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you become weary and faint in your minds. As we consider Jesus and what he went through for us and what he has done for us, ought to bring perspective to what we're going through today. After what Jesus has done for me, there is nothing he can ask of me. He is not worthy of me doing nothing. I don't care what kind of struggles you're facing in your home, what kind of difficulty God's allowing in your life. You are not going through anything. Jesus Christ is not worthy of you going through it His glory. That's what this table reminds us of. As we prepare to personally take time to remember Christ's sacrifice for us, I want us to remember how our Messiah was cut off. Remembering what He endured for us, may it bring revival to our hearts. We might live with the Lord, live for the Lord with more steadfast, steadfastness. Mm -hmm.